The name Robert Courtney surfaced in the news recently. Maybe you heard it. Robert Courtney has been serving for 30 years in federal penitentiary for awful crimes. In fact, when people heard about his early release, there was a massive outrage. What was it about Robert Courtney's crimes that created such a public outrage? Well, Robert Courtney was a pharmacist in Kansas City, and get this, for over 10 years, Robert Courtney prescribed 98,000 prescriptions and diluted them, cancer prescriptions, affecting over 4,200 patients, many of whom died. Now, it's hard for us to grasp the darkness within Robert Courtney's heart. What would cause him to do such evil? We don't know all of it, but we do know one thing. Robert Courtney loved money. He loved it a lot, mainly because it supported his lavish material lifestyle. In fact, while Robert Courtney was diluting drugs for profit for cancer patients, he was living this amazingly respectable life in the community. Not, not only that, get this, Robert Courtney was serving actively as a deacon in a local church. Now, Many of us, I trust, would never do what Robert Courtney did, something that horrific. But Jesus reminds us in the story today that each one of us can be blinded when it comes to material comforts. Material comforts can be good servants, can't they? But they can also be very cruel masters. Material comforts can be a blessing, but they also can be a very dangerous curse. If you have a Bible handy, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Now, as a church family, we are exploring the parables of Jesus in the book of Luke. And scholar Kenneth Bailey helps us to understand that parables help us to see. And he says this, If the parable is a house in which the listener or reader is invited to take up residence, then the person is urged by the parable, get this, to look on the world through the window of that residence. In other words, Jesus' parables help us to open our eyes to see the world through a truth-clarifying lens. Here in chapter 16 of Luke, Luke continues the theme that Jesus is teaching on material wealth. If you remember, in Luke chapter 15, we encounter a prodigal son who wastes his father's possessions. And then in the first part of Luke 16, we encounter a steward who blows the money of his master's account. And then in the second part of chapter 16, what we're going to look at today, we have a very rich man who wastes his own possessions. Throughout this, understand that Luke chapter 16 verse 14 is a key because Luke informs us that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, who are listening to Jesus were, quote by Luke, lovers of money. Now because the parable we are going to examine is so often misinterpreted and misapplied, let me say just a brief word before we dive in about what the parable is not saying. Hear me carefully. Jesus is not exalting material poverty, nor is he denigrated material wealth. Jesus is not saying if you are materially comfortable here, hell awaits you. <laughs> or if you're homeless here, heaven is guaranteed. Nor is Jesus primarily describing heaven or hell, although he is affirming two very real contrasting eternal destinies. Remember, Jesus also said that we cannot serve two masters, God or wealth. 
So he is focusing on the blinding peril when material comforts and wealth become just too important in our lives. Now, as we enter into this story, the story is built brilliantly by Jesus around two contrasting and two very emotive literary scenes. Scene one takes place in this life, in verses 19 through 21, and then scene two takes place in the afterlife, and it is described in verses 22 through 31. The first scene will paint for us an outrageous picture of callous indifference, and the second scene will paint for us a compelling reversal of fortune. So keep that in mind as we enter scene one. Look with me at verses 19 to 21. Luke writes, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Jesus describes the daily lives of these two men, and they could not be more different. One man Jesus simply calls a rich man, and the other a poor man. But notice, Jesus does something unique in all his parables at this moment. What is that? He gives the poor man a name. It's the only time in any of his parables he gives a character a name. And this tells us right away how high value and the importance he places on the poor man. Now, the name Lazarus is also significant. It comes from the Hebrew Eleazar, which means the one who God helps. Now, keep that in mind because that will help us understand the story. Now, Jesus paints a contrast, doesn't he? A deep contrast of the lives of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, what we see first is Jesus describes the rich man is dripping with and drowning in luxury. You will notice the key words first. The language of the rich man's clothing is so revealing because the language of clothed in purple captures this rare exclusivity of imported cloth made from the dye from marine snails, actually. And the reference is almost humorous. Notice to fine linen describes other very rare imported cloth for his tailor-made, yes, his tailor-made underwear. That's what he's saying. You get the idea. But also notice that Jesus describes this rich man's daily diet. He spared no expense, and nothing was outside his daily reach. Notice the emphasis. And this is in a time of great food insecurity for most people in that culture. And notice also the fact that Jesus mentions he has a gate tells us his home was vast and luxurious. I remember my first visit to Romania uh, shortly after the dictator of Romania was overthrown and executed. His name was Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife, Elena. I was in Romania with members of Christ's community uh, as we were planting a church there. I'll never forget arriving in Bucharest. And in Bucharest, once we got outside the airport, we began to drive. And you could see the empty shelves of the stores. You could see the meagerness, the grayness, the dilapidated apartments, blocks of them where people lived like rats in a cage. And then our bus turned the corner. And we drove by this palatial residence of Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu. And then, I'll never forget it, the corner turned and there was the Palace of Parliament. It was jaw-dropping in size and luxury. It went on for blocks and blocks. I'd never seen a building like that. I was just stunned. And Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu built this building. Now, here's some of the statistics. So it's so stunning. You imagine building a building for your own self, basically, 
that was 3,930,000,000 square feet. This building contains 1,100 rooms. And in 1989, it cost almost $2 billion in 1989. And right outside this building, the Romanian people languished in poverty and subsistence living. This is the kind of picture Jesus is painting in the first century of the rich man. It's jaw-dropping. It's heart-arresting. It's a contrast. And notice now in verses 20 and 21 of the poor man, and it's designed to create an evocative response of shock and outrage. Now notice how Jesus describes Lazarus, would you? He's dressed in rags, or what's left of rags is the idea. He's covered with sores, and he's lying by the gate of the rich man's luxurious estate. Now, Jesus emphasizes the gate, and he does it not accidentally. It is very intentional. It drives home the point that the rich man saw Lazarus at least once a day, if not more, because that's where he came and went in terms of his home. Yet he cared so little for a fellow human being, and this is accentuated even more by Jesus when he describes that Lazarus doesn't even get the scraps, can you imagine? Doesn't even get the scraps from the rich man's table. And if that is not enough, the dogs do, the wild dogs. These aren't like, you know, Fido in your house, that are your pets. These are wild dogs that roam. And notice what Jesus described. The wild dogs get the food and the Lazarus doesn't, but it's not just that. While the rich man could care less about Lazarus, Jesus wants us to know the wild dogs have more compassion on Lazarus by licking his sores to facilitate their healing than the rich man does at all. So as Jesus tells this story, you can imagine hearing the listeners gasp with incredulity. There is a sense of outrage at the indulgent and callous rich man. But Jesus doesn't focus his story there. He devotes the largest largest part of his story to the contrasting picture of the afterlife of both men and the compelling reversal. And this is seen too. Now, while the rich man took no notice of Lazarus, Jesus describes in amazing ways how God himself dispatches the angelic world to notice Lazarus, not only in life, but in death. And they carry him off to Abraham's side, which is like an Old Testament portrayal of heaven or paradise. Now, clearly, Lazarus' eternal destiny is a really good, good place. And Jesus doesn't describe it much. We maybe want that, but he doesn't. His focus is on, now, the rich man. The rich man's eternal destiny. And can we say, when we look at this text, it's not a pretty picture. In fact, it is one of the most frightful, horrific, vivid imageries of hopelessness, aloneness, and yes, torment. It reminds us of the 14th century brilliant work by Dante in Divine Comedy of the Inferno. And this is the picture we have. Jesus says the rich man died. He was buried. And with the rich man's wealth, we can assume he had a brilliant funeral for the whole community. What a contrast. And after his death, the rich man finds himself in Hades, or what the Bible calls hell. Now, it's intriguing in the story that the rich man can see Abraham and Lazarus, and Lazarus seated in a place of honor. This must have really hacked the rich man off. And he asked Abraham for mercy, the kind of mercy the rich man had never extended to Lazarus. And notice in the story, the rich man does not ask Abraham to relieve his suffering. 
but very intentionally ask Abraham to send Lazarus to do it as his errand boy. This is significant because Jesus is showing us something important. That the rich man's heart, even in Hades, has not changed a bit toward Lazarus. Who the rich man continues to see Lazarus as beneath him and there to serve him. And this is an important truth. Hell doesn't prompt a change of this man's heart. What it does is it reveals the true nature of his heart. Now, the rich man is expressing entitlement. And Kenneth Bailey, again, this scholar, says it so well. Listen to what he says. The rich man's first demand was unbelievable. When Lazarus was in pain, he was ignored by the rich man. Now the rich man was in pain, and something must be done about it immediately. After all, he is accustomed to such things. Instead of an apology... He demands services, and from the very man he refused to help in spite of his great wealth. Now, hearing Abraham's words, the rich man now in the story begs Abraham to send Lazarus to go back from the dead and warn his brothers. Now, once again, we see the rich man's cold and calloused heart. He still condescendingly sees Lazarus as his errand boy. But Abraham's response to the rich man in verses 29 through 31 is very instructive for us. Notice, Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It is at this point, the religious leaders, remember them, who are listening to Jesus convey this story through words of Abraham, are now getting the message they do not want to hear. They are like the rich man, Jesus is saying. They love money too much, and their eternal destinies hang in the balance on a thread. If they continue to be willfully blind, to reject the light of truth, the light of Moses and the prophets and the light of the gospel truth Jesus has given them, no more light will be given to them. Jesus' timeless words speak to us as well. This truth. If you and I reject the light of truth we have been given, we must never expect to be given more. And as we reflect on this parable, we too can reject the truth we have been given, can't we? We too can be perilously blind. And particularly, a comfortable life ensconced in material affluence can be perilously blinding. And I'd like us to consider three ways that's true. Three ways that we can be perilously blind to a life of material comfort. First, you and I can be blind to the needs of others. Because the way our society is arranged and the daily rhythm of our lives, most of our lives, we can be isolated and insulated from the materially poor and marginalized. Isn't it true we often hear the phrase, out of sight, out of mind? And that's true in my own life. There's a lot of truth to that. We can forget that there are fellow image bearers of God that are materially needy in our city, our nation, and our world. And one of the ways we can gain greater awareness is to spend time and resource poor communities in our city and our world. Another way we can be blinded to the material needs of others is to be overwhelmed by the needs. So much so that we are paralyzed to do anything. 
Yet we can do something, each one of us. And as a church family, we can do a lot together. Christ Community has several ministry partners who are serving right now the economically vulnerable in our city. We support these ministry partners financially, and many of them we are increasing during this global pandemic. Many of our partners have opportunities for you to roll up your sleeves and serve with them. I encourage you to check that out. As a church family, we are also actively working to address inequality and to provide economic opportunity for the most vulnerable in our world, especially our COVID-19 world, with all its economic disruption, unemployment, and stress. During this time, let us all be much more aware of the real needs of our neighbors near and far and seek ways to personally help those who are are hurting and ones we can do that for. Let's also express our gratitude to so many in our time who in spite of increased risks to their health are serving us, you and me, in such amazing ways through their work every day. The delivery personnel who drop off packages at our door, the fast food worker who helps us take out a meal, the clerk that checks us out at the grocery store. Jesus is reminding us that material comforts can blind us to the need of others but also material comforts can blind us to the condition of my heart and your heart. Jesus reminds us in other texts that we can see one little speck in another's eye and at the same time be blind to the big plank in our own eyes. And what is Jesus saying? He is saying the most perilous deception in your life and mine is not being deceived by others, but rather deceiving ourselves. All of us have blind spots, don't we? And we all need others to help us see more clearly. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us of the peril of self-deception when he says, our heart, your heart, my heart is deceitful beyond all else. Let me say transparently, one of the blinding perils of our culture and our time is what Francis Schaeffer brilliantly described as two impoverished cultural values that many of us unknowingly often embrace. He describes them as personal peace and affluence. And in his wonderful book, How Shall We Then Live? I commend to you, Schaefer writes these words. Listen carefully. Personal peace means just to be let alone, not to be troubled by the troubles of others, whether across the world or across the city, to live one's life with minimal possibilities of being personally disturbed. Affluence, on the other hand, means overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity, a life made up of things and more things and more things, success judged by an ever higher level of material abundance. These soul-suffocating, seductive forces that are a part of all our cultural air we breathe, of personal peace and affluence, can deceive each of us into believing that we are doing really well, at least materially, when we may not be doing very well emotionally, relationally, or spiritually. Now, I may not explicitly say, I don't need God when I have everything imaginable at my fingertips and I have many layers of financial security, but I may implicitly live my Monday life as if God is really not necessary. The inconvenient truth is we can be materially rich and spiritually poor. In the New Testament book of Revelation, the Apostle John pens these alarming words, not just to an individual, but an entire local church called Laodicea. Listen to what he says. Pretty hard-hitting, but important. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, of course, we can be materially poor and spiritually poor as well. But the scriptures often remind those of us who are more materially comfortable to be extra careful about the potential of wealth and material comfort to blind us. Material comfort can blind us to the needs of others. It can also blind us to the condition of our heart, but perhaps even most perilous is material comfort can blind us to the brevity of our own lives. Material wealth and possessions and comfort can get us so at home and cozy in this temporal context. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told again this riveting parable of a rich, foolish man who had amassed the tons of wealth, right? But then he died suddenly. The biblical writers remind each of us of the brevity of our temporal lives. That you and I are just like a vapor. We're here one day and gone tomorrow. Many years ago, I heard someone say, and it has stuck with me and kept close to my heart, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. At the end of the day, it's not how much we have but how much of what we have has us. Nobel Prize winner Albert Schweitzer, who gave much of his material wealth away in his apprenticeship to Jesus, has said something that sticks so close to my own heart when he said, if you own something that you cannot give away, then you don't own it. It owns you. Each of us are called to live our daily lives in joyful dependence on God, with grateful hearts and open hands, of everything we have. God made this material world good for us to enjoy and to steward well. And while material comforts can be wonderful servants, let's be very transparent. For many of us, they can become cruel masters. I find it compelling that the Apostle Paul writes these beautiful and wise words to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Listen carefully. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is reminding Timothy true life is ultimately following Jesus fully and knowing him. Now, regardless of our economic status, can I just say that these words in Holy Scripture are written to each one of us? Isn't it true that we all tend to define a rich person (laughs) as someone who has more material things or wealth than we do? Now, some of us may be more materially rich than others. And this is not necessarily a bad or wrong thing. But from any historic or global perspective, we have to say, honestly, transparently, humbly, that all of us are materially rich. And we are called to steward everything we have been entrusted from a kingdom perspective for the glory of God and for love of neighbor. And we are all called to live in dependence on God and interdependence with others. That's God's design. And we are called to live with grateful hearts and open hands, eager to be generous, to share all that we have and are with others. So let me ask you, have you embraced the good news of the gospel? Are you following Jesus 
in your Monday life as apprentices of him? All your time, your talent, and treasure. Are you enjoying what God has given you? And are you eager to share what God has given you? Are you living each day now in Christ's kingdom with eternity in mind? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through your word, teach us to open our hearts and minds and hands with all that you've entrusted to us. You have blessed us in so many ways materially. And may all those gifts be wonderful servants as we offer them up to you. Teach us to be generous. Guard us from the peril of blindness, of comfort, of personal peace and affluence. Lord Jesus, speak into each one of our lives. Allow us to be the stewards you call us to be, that we would one day hear, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory and the furtherance of his kingdom on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we want to encourage you to respond to Jesus' invitation to come to his holy communion table. Wherever you are, I encourage you to find the communion elements and to hear Jesus' words of invitation to you. The scriptures say that after Jesus rose up from supper, he instituted the Lord's table with these words. He took a piece of bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and said, this blood is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Let us do this in remembrance of him.